0: Those of you that are joining us from a distance, welcome as well. We're thrilled to share with you and, uh, and enjoy the edification of the Word of God for which we've assembled tonight. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul said uh, to the elder, elders of Ephesus that there was nothing more important for them than the Word of God. He commended them to God and to the Word of His grace, which was able to edifier, build them up, and able to give them the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. An ongoing process calls for ongoing intake and application. One application of what Paul just said in Acts 20 is we're going to pay close attention tonight. We're going to bring our best efforts of concentration And really, we're going to depend on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. That's the initial application of just what the Word of God is and what it's for. And then having learned something tonight, we're going to go forward and walk in love, recognizing that this is the expression of the character of Jesus Christ in us. To which end, let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're empowered by God the Holy Spirit for His work through us as we study. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clear record of Scripture from beginning to end that shows that we are part of the problem, that you have brought the solution through your Son, and that by your grace, we can become part of your beautiful solution. Thank you that there's nothing good in us. So that which you've placed in us, nothing good in and of ourselves, but that which you've brought in addition. Thank you that your Holy Spirit lives in each of us, and that as we submit to you and obey your commandments, you and your Son make your abode with us. Let us enjoy that fellowship tonight as we pay attention to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, we're studying the Christian spiritual life and we're kind of in, in a closed down mode. We're looking at the different ways the New Testament talks about the specific. Features of the Christian life, and um, we're putting things together, perhaps that aren't often considered to be together. For example, when we first started this study um, uh, back in the the winter time, we were talking about things like uh, um, fruit production, Christian performance, doing that which pleases God, and the idea of the power of the Holy Spirit to know God, to think His thoughts, to be discerning, and even to be pleasing to Him in anything we do is sort of the central theme, the central thought that runs throughout the New Testament on what's different, what's new, what's special about this age. A big part of my understanding of the New Testament on the spiritual life and indeed with spiritual gifts for the church-age believer um, is that um, in Matthew 7, sorry, John chapter seven, the Lord Jesus said that there would be this effect of the Holy Spirit on his hear- hearers, but it was a future effect. And, in, and remember, and this is in John 7, 39, the apostle editorializes Jesus. He, he explains what Jesus meant about streams of living water. This was a reference to the Holy Spirit who was not yet given because he was Um, not yet glorified because Jesus was not yet glorified. We have to acknowledge something different happened after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Something new and special has taken place. And that's really what we're celebrating when we get together and study the word together. Through this little study of the Christian spiritual life, we've talked about the vital connection between the indwelling spirit in us and the Word of God that He inspired in the apostles and prophets. Prophets of the Old Testament, apostles and prophets of the New Testament, what the Word of God is and how He uses it. And I believe, just so we understand definitions before we get into these functional things like spiritual gifts, the filling of the Holy Spirit is nothing less and nothing different from. In this age, the work of the indwelling Spirit, who's always in you until forever, who's always in you, the work of the indwelling spirit, to use the word, I'm talking about the scriptures, that you've taken in, that you are taking in, that you've meditated on, that he's illuminated to you. And he, he uses that content of thought that he inspired to characterize your thoughts so that you're thinking and acting as God wants you to think and act. It's the actualization of the spiritual thought life, by the power of the personal and dwelling third person of the Holy of God, the, the Holy Spirit in you, and so it's not really a secondary stream of revelation. It's not like, well, I just the Holy Spirit's filling me, so I get ideas. As much as it's the Holy Spirit filling me, is causing me to be saturated with the Scriptures that I've I'm taking in, that I'm breathing in, so that I'm exhaling the wisdom of the thinking of God. And it's so much different than just saying read your Bible and pray. It's so much more, it's so much more dynamic. It is truly a supernatural work of God where you think God's thoughts and they're your thoughts, but it's because you're saturated with his word. And I've said many times, just as this is kind of a summary opener, but the the hardest thing in the world, even harder than Greek exegesis to know specifically and explicitly what's being said, what's being communicated in this or that narrative feature of Scripture. Much harder than interpreting a passage of Scripture and knowing exactly what the author intends by what he says, which is our goal, is the ability to look at the specific details of my life or your life and know how that meaning is to be lived out in this instance. It's a challenge that is... So very difficult because of all the many different experiences every one of us has all the time. It's kind of like trying to type with a Chinese typewriter. You know, the, ty- the Chinese alphabet is huge, and so the the, chi- the, the traditional typewriter is it takes up a whole wall. I'm told I hadn't I haven't typed on it, but uh, you know, it's there's so many different possible things that you're going to encounter in life. And a lot of them are bigger than you and a lot of them will break you and they're, they're designed to without the power of God working in you. And you have people in your midst all the time dealing with soul-crushing hurt, soul-crushing pressures from the, the wickedness of others, the consequences of wicked choices they have made, from the various troubles of this life. I mean, I truly believe that Satan's world system is a, is a sausage grinder. It's a meat grinder that is perfectly designed for little children. It is taking the little souls of children and trying to grind them into useless, thoughtless, undiscerning automatons that just spout the party line, just put them through the machine, and they just say what whatever, whatever godless thing is, is the party line of the day and Satan's smarter than we are and his system's integrated at all levels and what I'm communicating, I'm trying to communicate here is the vital need for a supernatural way of life. We are in an intensified phase of God's work in this war that has raged since the Garden of Eden, this war of ideas and actions and We need the power of God, the Holy Spirit, every moment of every day to equip us and enable us to do everything that God wants. And the special enablement now that we're talking about, the power of God to do what He wants, of spiritual gifts is before us. I believe there are three key passages in the New Testament on the concept, the topic of spiritual gifts, three key passages about the, the, the concept of spiritual gifts and the first one that I talk about usually is in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, and I believe this provides you the rationale about their importance. And there's a special way to think about spiritual gifts, all of them, even though the ones he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 have already passed on. Paul in the first century is talking about the revelatory gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and the misuse of non-edifying revelatory gift of tongues in Corinth in specific. And that's chapters 12 through 14. And up front, I want to say that the direct application to these things about whether we permit tongues or not would mean that the Lord was still doing that today. And I don't think he is. But if we were to receive the gift of tongues, what that would be biblically is someone speaking a language they don't know and what they were doing and speaking was praising God. And what they would be providing, in to chapter 14, is a sign. A sign, I think. Okay, you ready to go downstairs? A sign to Israel that there's something happening that the Gentiles are speaking of their God in the foreign languages that they don't know. And Babel is being undone. And there's a sign that's happening, but it's not an edifying thing that's taking place there according to chapter 14. When you talk about the rationale, though, even though I believe the gifts that he's described are revelatory, benefiting from them, I'm getting the the prophetic word that Paul was gifted to give that he wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. I think that's what he's talking about. There is still an application of the thought process he's taking the Corinthians through that we really need, and it's a good place to start. The rationale basically is this. Everybody in the body of Christ has the same set of responsibilities called the Great Commission. In that Great Commission of the mission of the church, the body of Christ, is a code Jesus calls a new commandment. And that code encompasses every thought and action we have toward all people, one another and to all. And it is to love one another as Christ loved us. We begin within the body of Christ and present Christ from a context of true Christian love. That watchword, that mission that Jesus gave his church with that law that he put in the scriptures and repeated through all his apostles that we would love one another to that impossibly high, Holy Spirit-given, equipped standard of as Christ loved That is the responsibility of every believer. And in Corinth, you have some with the spiritual gift of foreign languages who think that they are better and higher in the spiritual totem pole because they can speak foreign languages in this gifted way, this first century gift. And they are not doing what every believer is responsible for, and they're using the gift in a wrong way way that's that's what's going on you can actually function incorrectly sinfully in a spiritual gift now i only know that because of first corinthians chapters 12 through 14 but i also see it now let me walk into my life i see communicators that are gifted no question christian communicators who say wrong things all the time everyone who ever told you that true christianity is wealth after the flesh is an easy ride in this life because if you're really getting it right, God will really pour on the the riches. Everyone that ever said that message, and there have been many through church history, is not speaking the word of God. They're not speaking the love of God to the people who need a, a, a future, not present orientation. They don't need to look at their pocketbook today except as a stewardship to serve God with as they look to what is coming. Now, You can function incorrectly in your spiritual gift in Corinth, and you have to be trained to do it correctly. And that's the whole discussion on tongues. But even, and much more important than the individual giftedness that any believer might have, whether it's a foot or a hand or an eye, love, love is everything. It's so important that in chapter 13, verses one through three, He says, if I have a spiritual gift, but I don't have love, then my spiritual gift is wasted. Which leads me to think this. Here's my big picture on spiritual gifts in the Christian life. Based on the fact that 1 Corinthians 13, let let me just read it. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That means Annoyance but it's going to get worse. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I've gone from an annoyance to having zero significance, to being a total waste, and you heard what an incredible gifted package he just described. But that totally awesome gifted package is a total waste. Because disobedient, and therefore Jesus is saying nothing. Again, first, or only the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 3 if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It, it's no benefit to me. So I lost everything, and then I don't have anything to show for it later. Because. Here's what I want to say as a summary application of those statements. That Christian love, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, this Christian virtue, which grows spiritually as we've seen in 1 Thessalonians 3, this Christian love has to be the thing I'm doing with my spiritual gift. It's not that I have two bags and one of them's love and that's good and the other's my spiritual gift and that's good. It's that the mission of the body of Christ is constantly conducted in love. And so as I function within my spiritual gift, I'm being specially equipped by God to do what he wants me to do. And if you look at what the spiritual gifts provide, what they accomplish, they are all the things that the saints need. They are all God's best for us. And that's God's love to us. So here's my summary, Christian spirituality involves growing up into your spiritual gift so that in a special sense you're equipped to do what God wants you to do, which is love the brethren. The spiritual gift is the way you love one another. It's not about you, it's not about whether you've got tongues and you're flashy or not in Corinth. It's not about where today we have evangelists and pastors and teachers. It's not about whether they're flashy and and known. It's about, or, the, or helps, or service, or administration, or exhortation, or, or giving, or the ones that are still effective today, the, the spiritual gifts that continue to function, and those that are not listed. It isn't whether I'm this or that and I have my significance. It's whether I'm loving, whether I'm growing spiritually in the capacity to love, so that as I grow into that giftedness, I'm loving with it. I'm not selfish, I'm not self-glorifying, I'm not self-aggrandizing, I am giving and I am loving through this special capacity. I think that's the big picture rationale we walk away from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 with, and that's why the long discussion, the chapter in the middle of the gifts chapters on love, chapter 13, is all about a description of love. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 is I believe definitive instruction on the uniqueness as a summary of Christian spiritual gifts the uniqueness in this age of Christian spiritual gifts let me explain what i mean there is the spiritual gift in this age of prophet prophecy someone capable of giving forth special divine revelation directly it's the church age prophet again i think it's a revelatory gift that ceased in the first century in, in other words nobody's ever written a book that i think we absolutely have to preach like we have to preach 66 books of the bible i'm saying that that's what i mean by a prophet matthew mark luke mark and luke are definitely not apostles but they're prophets This ability to edify the body of Christ is a special capacity to do something that God wants done. But this one, the prophet gift that we're talking about in, this, in Ephesians 4, was given by the Lord Jesus Christ upon his ascension. That's the big point in chapter 4, is that this is the Lord Jesus in exaltation after his incarnation at, the, at Christmas, his birth, his uh, ministry, his suffering for our sins on the cross, his burial, resurrection, ascension. It's at that point that he gave this particular set of gifts that we're talking about, the church age spiritual gifts. It's new. It was never given because Jesus hadn't done this yet. And that sounds a lot like John 7. He hadn't been glorified, so he hadn't given the spirit yet. And that's, that's, we'll look at that tonight a little bit in Ephesians chapter four. My big picture on this idea from my summary of Ephesians four on spiritual gifts, the way the language works, he's definitely talking about the same thing in chapter four that he's talking about in Romans 12, that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. This concept of spiritual gifts though in chapter four describes the person as the thing. He gave prophets, he gave apostles, he gave pastors. If the gift of prophet is the person, and in Romans 12, the gift that equips the person is the gift of prophecy, or teaching in Ephesians 4, the person, the teacher is the gift. And in Romans 12, the ability to teach is the gift, then... This really makes sense to me. By God's gifting you, you become a gift to the church. You become that special person that you are with your specific capability that he gave you as a blessing to his body, the church. And... If you wanna look at yourself through the lens of the scriptures and see who you really are, look at the mirror of the Bible to tell you who you are. First of all, let's get rid of all our vainglory and all our pride about ourselves, and after all, it's just me. I'm, it's good for you, L- lucky for you I showed up. Let's get rid of all the arrogance and all the, all the pride about ourselves and be laid naked before God, and then recognize all that he has done for us, all that he has made of us by His grace alone and not at all because of our works, by His sovereign choice to make us what He wants to make us with nothing in ourselves. That grace of God, which is the focus of Ephesians chapter 4, causes us to worship Him in gratitude and never to boast except in the Lord. Look at who He is and what He's done, which is what your gift is for, so you can boast in the Lord. Which brings us to chapter 12 of Romans a summary of Christian conduct, as we're seeing on Sundays, but in the terms of the discussion on spiritual gifts, where we stay humble because it's the grace of God from beginning to end, and we recognize the importance of the greater mission and of one another in that mission, as opposed to focusing on ourselves and our own self-importance. It's run through 1 Corinthians 12 by review. The rationale in verses 1 through 3 of First Corinthians 12, you have a contrast between God, the Holy Spirit, and the world as we saw Sunday. And then you have one body with many functions in verses 4 through 11. And then an emphasis on the one body of Christ in verses 12 and 13, which is really important if you want to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, this is First Corinthians 12, verse 12, And all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, again, is new. It's for this age. It wasn't done before Jesus was glorified. We're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. He's a reference to both the baptism of the spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Two ministries which are not talked about very much in the New Testament, but this verse, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, answers the question, how did I get put into Christ? How am I in Christ? How am I in the body of Christ? How did I get there? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, by this baptism, we are united to Jesus. And It is not water. The water is the representation. It is the portrait. Much like communion, it's not about the bread and the cup. It's about what they represent. In verses 14 through 26, what does this look like? And he teases out a lot of discussion about unity and diversity, the foot and the hand talking to each other. And Not everybody can just be an eye. And the way the body works uh, to be a functioning, healthy body. We talk in our culture a lot about unity and diversity. Our diversity is our strength. And I guess what that's supposed to mean is that everyone speak whatever language you want. Whatever you came from, speak the language from where you're where you're born. And that'll be strong for us. Well, it's not. It doesn't make any kind of strength to be at odds. But see... What we're talking about here is everyone has a different role. Everybody has a different function because of everyone's different designation by God's design. And what we we have to do is embrace those differences. Not where you're in error, I embrace your error, but where you're made for a purpose that's different from the specific function of my purpose, even though we have one big purpose. That idea. And so, unity is emphasized as we embrace the diverse things God is doing in the body of Christ. This is a very big, this is a struggle for every believer at some point in your spiritual life, maybe all the time. You have to look at that Christian that you don't really have grounds to doubt their profession, their faith in Christ. That Christian that they mean well, but they just don't get it. And the more you interact with them, the more you realize I've got to move and get a new phone number. What do you do with such a situation? Well, what I'm saying is everybody has people in their lives that become inconvenient and you'd rather not deal with them. Just how it is. I don't mean that as the pastor of this church. I mean as a human being that grew up on this planet, there are people in your life that you'd rather not mess with. So what do you do? Well, you go to God and you say, what does he think about this person? We have personality things where we, his situation grinds on me and I struggle, or, or, or she and I don't, we're like oil and water. We just cannot get along. We can't get it together. It always goes bad. There's always a misinterpretation, a miscued in communication. Something happens and then there's this reaction that happens and it's just bad. Well, the, I didn't say go to the person to try to sort it out. I said go to God and figure this out this person that for whatever reason from God's eternal purposes is uh, not possible for you to really enjoy fellowship with because of the breakdown in communications and so forth, that person has eternal life, the indwelling Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift into which they're supposed to be growing up and functioning and that's not guaranteed but they're supposed to and God has them in his hand as much as he has you in his hand. Now we're talking about siblings. And you can't just bump them off. They're the family. You have to deal. And that's the way you think about it. Who is this person in Christ? And um, so when you're struggling with those kinds of issues, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And remember that the person that you're just, why can't they just not be part of my life? Remember, they have a spiritual gift sovereignly bestowed by God with a purpose for their lives and if they're believers in Christ, they're those for whom God is working all things together for good, along with you. And you're like, okay, I don't have to be in the same kayak, but okay, you know, fine. And and maybe that's where it has to be. Sometimes it is where it has to be. We read about that in the scriptures. There are separations between Christians that become necessary because of choices that some make. Nevertheless, The implications here are huge, that we always look for that unity and embrace the fact of the diversity of what God is doing in the other person's life. This is where you can rest. You don't have to be the other person's father, heavenly father. You don't have to be in charge of what God gave them and wants them to do. You're not their judge. You're not their caretaker. You're not, you're not. You're your brother's keeper in the sense that you're a sibling. But you're not their heavenly father and that's a place to rest. That's one application. But the point is that God's working in every believer's life, he has a call in every believer's life and he doesn't throw us away. He's got a beautiful mosaic he's weaving together and we need to get an artist's appetite to appreciate what he's doing. It takes the eyes of faith, it takes me constantly going back to him and saying I know you're doing something in this situation. In verses 27 through 31, Paul emphasizes the need to go after the edifying gifts and he puts them in order, he ranks them. The closer you get to special revelation from God, the higher rank, so apostle, prophet, down to teacher. And then those who arrange for the teaching, gifts and uh, miracles and gifts of healings testifying to the teaching. In verse 28, helps, administrations, tongues, as the last one And then he describes that you really want, earnestly desire the greater gifts. This doesn't mean I believe that you want God to give you the greater gift, except that in the body, you want to see it expressed. I want to see prophets come and prophesy there in the first century. We want to see teaching of the word go forth and want people to be edified. And this is a great theme through the whole three chapters is go after edification go after the teaching have your mind renovated through the teaching of the word so that you're able to you know romans 12 to be what god wants you to be he's going to take that thought all the way through and that's why the tongues people that think they're better because they're speaking in tongues or there's a there's a faction that says "Ooh, these guys are tongues that's special that's nonsense they're special like everyone because we're in christ and we have a gift from him and um and so go after the edification gifts. But before I'm going to talk about that, which is chapter 14, Paul says there is a more excellent way. And that's this parenthesis. He does a parenthesis in the middle of the discussion on spiritual gifts and the need to seek and recognize the unity and embrace the diversity of God's work in everyone's life. And he takes us into this discussion of love. And we have in verses 1 through 3, as we've seen our ethic, love must drive the function of the gifts. Love drives the function of these gifts. So if, I'm, if I've am if i got tongues, uh, which is, had a function in the first century, and I don't have love, then I'm just noise, I'm just annoying, which means that you've gotta have this, this hand-in-glove relationship between love and the function of the gift. In verses four through seven, you have a description of Christian love, a description of Christian love. Some have said this is the definition of love. I don't think it defines it. I think it describes it, as I've said many times. Love acts patiently. Love acts kindly. It, does not, it is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not speak, on, speak its own. Sorry, it doesn't seek its own. See, that's what I keep going back to is love is the self-sacrificial desire for the best of the other. Not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered. That means love is forgiving in advance. That's a challenge. Am I really loving if I'm holding grudges? No. Am I really loving if I'm bitter? No. No, I'm not. I'm holding that wrong suffered, and that's a, that's a thing between me and the Lord if I'm doing that. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does it mean that love believes all things? If you've got a pathological liar, Christian, oh, that's not possible. It is. If you've got a Christian that lies to you all the time, like a four-year-old, You've got a Christian that's really a believer and they lie to you all the time. And um, does that mean that you, if you love them, you believe what they tell you? Does it mean you believe their lies? No, that's stupid. That would be stupid to do, and we all can acknowledge that. And that's not a contradiction of Scripture. When it says believes all things, it means we believe that God has a plan for his life and he's working and we're trusting God to do a work. In other words, he may be struggling with lying right now, but I'm not going to put him in a box that he can't get out of. I'm not going to build this container that says, well, that's what he is. And I can then uh, dispense with thinking of him because I'm better than that. And I feel better about myself because I've rejected this person as a category. It means that I'm expecting a different outcome than I'm seeing. And that means that that kid who was troubled with lying or whatever, whatever his problem was when he was young, and, he, and God spanks him along and he's like, I don't like these spankings and he changes and he says, okay, I've got a heavenly father and that, thank you, father, for spanking me. I'm going to walk the way you want me to walk now. And the kid turns a corner and he grows spiritually and he becomes more and more responsible and he, he changes. I don't then leave him in that box and say, well, but you remember you belong in that box because he's gonna say, actually, you love me all along. He's gonna say something like this. You were always pulling for me. You always believed there was something better in me than what I was showing you. You hoped that's to expect more out of me. That's Christian love, that's what love does. Love doesn't relegate to categories and reject. Now, we have to do some categorization at times. There are criminals among us at times. There are people that, uh, that Paul says he makes a category of a Christian that's acting like an unbeliever and thereby denying the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. My Bible translates it as so called brother. The Greek says one called brother, someone called a brother, which means they're a brother. And he says he makes a strong distinction in 1 Corinthians 5. You can look it up. I think it's like in verse 10. I'm not telling you to disassociate from the people conducting pornea who are of this world you'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about the one called brother. This is the same thing as 1 Corinthians 2. They're carnal. They are acting as mere men, chapter 3. Okay, And so the, the carnal believer, that's a problem. That's a category. But it's not something that we expect of them. We expect better. We hope all things. We believe in the Lord and what he can do with that life. And we trust in the Lord on that person's account. And when it comes time for the turn When we see the transition, we see God do what we've been praying for and praying for and praying for, and we see a transition, we see a a, a change. We see a change of mind, and therefore that's what repentance means, where the person actually is walking like they're supposed to walk, like all the commands in the New Testament are talking to, uh, to me and you, Christians, and we see that happen, we're not there saying, oh, now I've got to repent of my bitterness toward this person because I've nailed him to this box. We're right there alongside him saying we knew it. Not we told you so and bet you don't want to get spanked anymore. We say we knew it. We believed in the Lord's work in your life and we hoped in his grace on your account. <clears throat> in verses 8 through 13, you have a picture of the, uh, the fact that, that faith and hope are temporary requirements because you don't see. So you believe. You believe what you don't see. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is seeing. And believing is believing what you don't see. And um, faith, hope, and love abide, uh, these three, but the greatest is love. The the greatest is love is because when you see what you now believe, you will still be loving that object. And love that you have for the brethren that's growing is going to continue. And these self-sacrificial attitudes and actions that amount to Christian love go with us forever. So it's eschatological. That means it's it's future-oriented. That's really important because he talks about revelation and partial understanding of God versus complete understanding of God. And this uh, wonderful passage on, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I will know fu- fully just as I also fully have been known. This idea of eschatological, uh, it sounds just like First John, when we see him, we'll be like he is. Uh, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. But then that summary, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And the greatest being, again, because it is something that actually comes from God's very character. He puts it in us. Faith is not something that God exercises toward us. When we say faith, we mean believing someone else and trusting in their faithfulness. It's not something God exercises toward us. People want to say that because it's a nice thing to say that I believe in you. So God loves you. He believes in you. But, that, but let's think about it. God knows. He knows all the knowable. He knows the end from the beginning. So um, he's not believing in absence of, of, uh, of seeing and observing and so forth. Hope, expectation. This is, this, is not, this is something we do based on God's promises. We're not telling God our promises and then he's expecting and hoping in us to do what we said. Right. Um, but he does love us. And this love, agape love, is his love expressed through us that we're talking about through this passage. And it is the greatest. It is the expression of God's character through you, and it is forever. That's the parenthesis of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So when you get to chapter 14, where we've moved from the incomplete revelation to complete and not canceling love, You find that prophecy, and we're going to talk about spiritual gifts again, prophecy is superior to tongues because it's edifying, and that's the big theme of chapter 14, As you go for edification, not for flashy. Don't go for something that you're impressed by unless you're impressed by the Word of God, by knowing God better, be impressed with Him. So we are uh, seeing prophecy, the edification of prophecy as superior to tongues, And then there's a long discussion of tongues, an extended discussion of tongues, pun sort of intended there, okay? And he talks about the benefits, and it's really, again, about whether or not it's edifying. He says in verse 11, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbar. Um, Do you know what barbarian is? That's a Greek word, and it means the people that didn't speak Greek. They weren't Jews, but they didn't speak Greek. Greek. And they made fun of them. The Greek language was very, very erudite and lithpy. A lot of thetas all through the Greek language. And uh, very, uh, very, very carefully stated. And, and, um, and these guys, these, these naked monster men with their uh, hairy boots and their axes, when they spoke, it sounded to the erudite Greeks like they were saying, bar, 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 bar. And that's why they're called barbarians. That's the Greek word there. And the one is verse 11, 1 Corinthians fourteen eleven. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So we're, we're un, unintelligible to each other and we sound like we're speaking gibberish. But that's because when you hear someone speaking a language you don't know, it sounds unintelligible gibberish. So also you... Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound in the edification of the church. And that's my point. I think I'm I'm tracing through this whole thing is that the goal of the gifts is edification. Can someone connect the dots between edification and spiritual gifts and Christian love? Why do we seek edifying gifts in a context talking about love? Because love is what someone needs. By whose account? God's. And so what I do if I'm God, what God does, forget that statement, what God does in loving us is he sends his son to die for our sins because that's what we need. We need eternal life. And there's nothing else we really need if we don't have that. So the eternal life or the lake of fire, the big need is eternal life. So God loved us, John 3, 16, by giving his son for us so we could have eternal life. If that's what God's love looks like in its function, then can you see that we're seeking the expression of the edifying gifts because we love the saints and we want the saints to have what God wants them to have, which is Him, the edification of knowing Him. So the spiritual gifts are a special way we love others so that they grow spiritually to know God because it's all about love and it's, it's what they need. So someone once said, are you just saying all we have to do is love? And, and my answer is, I know it sounds like a one-word Kind of seems a little little simplistic summary, but it's kinda of like the button on your iPhone. You know, it's everything. It does everything. Every aspect of your Christian walk is going to have an expression of love, motivating it, empowering it, directing it, explaining it. It's always going to be in that context. Wait, 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 what if I'm praying? Is that loving? Well, let me ask you this. You love God? <laughs> Is it an act of love to pray to him, to praise him, to tell him thank you, to reflect on his grace back to him? Of course. When you pray for me, do you understand that if you're praying for God to do what I need, that that's an act of love on my behalf? I mean, that's what you're spending your time doing? That's, yeah, lo- prayer is all about love. Everything we do, I'm, I'm contending, if we're gonna get right, and the power of the Spirit is going to be characterized by Christian love, and including whether or not we speak in tongues. Verse 13 through 19, the goal, again, is edification. So if you're speaking in tongues, pray for an interpretation. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What what is the outcome then? I'll pray with the spirit, and I'll pray with my mind also. So I'm going to seek edification because there's a little bit of anthropology going on here about the distinction between the mind and the spirit, But the thinking part of me, the heart of man is going to need to be involved for there to be edification, he says in verses 13 through 19. And uh, you can kind of scan through that and and see the, the, the topic of edification or spiritual growth through the word of God there. When I say edification, I'm talking about the word of God causes you to grow because it helps you know God. And that's what growth is, is knowing God better. Not knowing about God, but knowing Him, drawing nearer to Him, and by that encounter, more and more reflecting His character. So in verses 20 through 25, uh, the concept of the function of the sign gifts versus the concept of prophecy. Listen to it, uh, this, this emphasis on edification in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. That's a, that's a reflection of, ed, of someone that's been edified so they can think at a high level about God. And I don't mean intellectually. I'm not talking about mere intellect, in, intellection about God. I mean to think his thoughts. <clears throat> and, then he, and then he quotes Isaiah 28. In the law, it's written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I'll speak to this people, even so they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. And I believe that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. Israel heard the praises of God in Gentile languages. All the Gentile languages of the Diaspora were praising God and Jesus and the resurrected Christ in the presence of all these Jews gathered for the feast. So the tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but those who believe. What? The tongues are the warning, okay? And the prophecy is the knowledge of God for those that believe and love him and get to know him better. And that's what, again, it's more and more about edification. I have a good friend who's a pastor down in Christiansburg, Virginia. We were talking about the theology that's derived in 1 Corinthians. And a lot of Christian New Testament theological things, like the difference between spirit and mind, that's in chapter 14. And a lot of these interesting things that Paul just barely touches on and moves on, you know, people have developed whole theologies out of them. We really lean heavily on 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 3 for understanding the spiritual man versus the carnal man, rightfully, I think. But my friend John says, you know, 1 Corinthians is just a whooping from beginning to end. It's just 16 chapters of Paul whooping them for for messing up every topic is an error they make. This is a man from West Virginia. That's how you say it down there. It's a whooping from beginning to end. So, when you get to verses 26 through 36, it's another time where he's going to say the whole conduct, everything is for edification. <clears throat> and I've even incorporated women be silent in church. That's a discussion about the need for edification as well. In verses 37 uh, through 40, you have the concept of apostolic communication. Therefore, I'm sorry. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. This is exactly what John says in 1 John 1, 3. Our fellowship is with God, and we offer fellowship with you for what we're writing. So you're gonna fellowship with us, the apostles, by what we say. This is what, this is what an apostle of Jesus Christ will say. He'll show his cards and say, this is the goods, you need to get it here. And if you've got a contrary idea and you're prophesying you're wrong, it's not apostolic and that's the authority of apostleship if anyone does not recognize this he is not recognized in context he's talking about when you have in the first century a prophet in the church would show up you have two or three guys that are ready to go share a prophecy and um, and we'll recognize them because we don't want to deny the gift of prophecy prophetic utterance um, as it functioned but um, if he is going to speak against the apostolic teaching that he is not recognized as a prophet. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. His summary of the context for how edification will take place. So the gifts are for edification, which is what the saints need, and therefore chapter 14 looks back at Christian love, like chapter 12 looks forward to the need for Christian love, and chapter 13 describes it. So my intention in this little discussion, a little run, review through something we've done not too long ago in terms of spiritual gifts, is to show th- this big picture. There's be- there are lots of details through here that you may quibble about here or there, but whether even a, a person that believes in continuation of prophecy, like, like Wayne Grudem thinks that we still have New Testament prophets, but they're not writing scripture. So any- anyway, um, even if you disagree with some of the details, the big picture is, is stabilized regardless of cessationism or continuationism of of revelatory gifts, the the point that Paul has made is that the gifts are a special enablement for us to do what we all are called to do, which is to love one another. And the, the thing, and this is the part that I love the most, that I need the most, that stabilizes my life, and I pray stabilizes your life, is that what we need is edification. What we need is what God does with us through the word. We need the word of God to transform us in the inner man as a continual, as a, as a constantly repetitive behavior. It'll never be, we'll never have enough of God's word. We'll never have experienced this enough because we're never going to be fully retaining everything. We're never going to fully grasp everything. We're going to be constantly needing to reach forward. And that's, that's like saying I've eaten my last meal or I've had my last drink of water to say I've, I've had enough of the word. We'll never be able to say that because it's the fuel that enables us to do all that God wants us to do. In this case, to edify the saints. It's what the saints need. Which takes me, if you please, uh, just for the last few moments tonight, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is one of your other two passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I believe it's definitive. I think it's definitive. And 16 verses uh, of Ephesians 4, I think, are on this topic of spiritual gifts. And if you, as you look in verses 1 through 6, the first paragraph here, it's a Christian ethic of unity, a Christian ethic of unity that sounds a lot like what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the unity uh, focus. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, the, which, with which you've been called, Now, that's a great summary. Walk worthy of your calling, but then he defines it. He specifies what that looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Oh, dealing with each other. That's how we walk worthy of our calling. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I have to make special efforts, make to be diligent or make special effort. I say it's a mission focus. This is my focus of my energies being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and then he goes into this unity discussion one body one spirit just as you are also called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all now wait a second one baptism doesn't that mean that there's got to be either spirit baptism or water baptism but there can't be both because there's only one baptism isn't that what that means and i think that's insane if you look at the context if you hold that position i don't think you're insane i just to me if i thought that i would be insane that the context of the the statement is talking about the oneness of the body of christ talking about one brand there's not multiple baptisms you can't have, and there's a problem in first century paul baptized me will apollos baptize me and you know he's a better speaker well, Paul, the better writer, I mean, Paulus hasn't written anything except Hebrews. Or, no, he didn't write Hebrew. I'm just saying. Like, Apollos hadn't written anything, but Paul baptized me. And Paul's like, are you in the house of Stephanus? <sighs> I wish I hadn't baptized anyone. He tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. So, and so, so there aren't multiple baptisms. In fact, if you're baptized in the baptism of John and you're in Ephesus and Acts, then Paul's gonna baptize you under the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He's gonna give you Christian baptism. And so, no, it's not talking about the multiple baptisms we talk about, of whether it's water as the picture of spirit baptism. It's that in the body of Christ, there is one unity. And so, yes, we have a Holy Spirit work that when we first believe in Christ, unites us to to Christ. And then we are obeying the Lord Jesus in baptizing disciples to demonstrate that by the water as a portrayal, they are in union with Jesus Christ. So that's a fun little excursus to chase. But in verses 7 through 13, you have this concept of everybody gets a spiritual gift. If you came here tonight not knowing that you have a spiritual gift from God, you need to leave here tonight absolutely knowing that you have a spiritual gift from God. You have a spiritual gift from God. In some contexts, the idea of spiritual gifts begins with pastor and ends with pastor-teacher. And that's all there is to any kind of sense of spiritual gifts. And that's a huge tragedy. It's a travesty. It's a mismanagement. It's a misunderstanding. And it's a misrepresentation of the scriptures. Spiritual gifts are extended to everyone. And you don't get stamped with what you are. You have to grow spiritually. And you'll do what you're called to do. But in verse 7, you have this promise, this statement that Paul says, and I take it uh, as apostolic truth, to each one of us, charis was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He doesn't say charisma. He says charis, grace or grace gift. A charisma is a grace gift. A charis is a grace. But he's not talking about grace at justification where you have eternal life and you didn't deserve it and he gave it to you. He's talking about the specific expression of the Holy Spirit in your life and it comes out in context. So he calls the spiritual gifts elsewhere, charisma here, he calls them grace. And everyone in verse seven receives it. And it is according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you don't even get to take any credit. It's not because of anything you brought. Well, you know, he's really smart or or she's a really nice person. So she's really got the gift of hospitality or whatever, whatever the gift it is. You know, he's really good at, at spreadsheets. So he must be a super administrator gifted person. And that's not how it works. It's not according to your talent or your background. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. And by the way, there's a big error out there that your gifts are your special talents. I must have the gift of Christian singing. It's not listed. And uh, some people are more talented, we would even say gifted by the grace of God, genetically, uh, to sing than others. And we want them to sing louder than the others. But I, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. But I could be wrong. It could be one of the unnamed gifts. And if you are capable of singing praises to God at a high level, we here at Preston City Bible Church, as you know, encourage you to do that to the farthest extent of your capability. <clears throat> he quotes Psalm 68 in a very uh, challenging portion of the New Testament. He says, therefore it says, it the scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And most manuscripts or most most versions of the Old Testament that we have, have that as he received gifts from men in Psalm 68, except for the Syriac, and we're wondering about that. But here's what I think Paul is doing. He is taking the concept of God's domination of Zion in Psalm 68 and applying that to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his ascension. And you can check every Greek and Hebrew scholar that i read to determine that you can do all the textual criticism analysis that you'd like to do to make that uh, assessment but the point is that what what is written in psalm 68 uh, in most manuscripts is different than what paul quotes including the septuagint so what we're left with is we have an apostolic statement here like when he quotes enoch enoch is an inspired when Paul, paul quotes when jude quotes it it has an inspired use And so what's the point? When the Lord Jesus Christ was victorious and ascended, it was his glory to give gifts to men, and that's what he did. And now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Two interpretations of the lower parts of the earth. The first is that at the incarnation when Jesus came, he came to earth in the incarnation. Well, one sub-A is that he humbled himself, and that's how he came to the lower parts of the earth, by humbling himself. I don't think that works. The other view is that after his uh, crucifixion, he descended spiritually into the abode of the dead, Abraham's bosom, and took them captive. And I take that view. That's, That's how I understand. Descended to the lower parts of the earth. But regardless of how you take verse 9, verse 10 is what he's getting at. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And this is the ascension and glorification of Jesus Christ, the God-man, now occupying a position of majesty and glory that no human being has ever or could ever attain. And so verse 11, on that giving that we talked about in verse 7 and in verse 8 and now in verse 10, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. It doesn't say some there. It just says he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's some of the most poetic and complicated language. That's some of the best translation work on that passage out there in English translations and here in the New American Standard. And what it ultimately means without tracing out the, the close syntactical details of that construction is that God is going for spiritual maturity and he wants it for everyone. And that's why the spiritual gifts. Now, I have a friend, a dear friend in the Lord, who's a scholar far beyond my abilities, who will say that verse 11 does not refer to spiritual gifts pastor teacher is not a spiritual gift evangelist is a spiritual gift apostle and prophet and the problem i've got with that is romans 12 lists prophet lists teacher as spiritual gifts so he doesn't like my analysis but um but i do when god gives you a gift when you function in that gift that makes you a gift to the church in the sense that god is gracing the church with that edification that you bring from the expression of your gift Now, in verse 11, he does not list many of the spiritual gifts. In fact, very few of the ones in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. But what he is doing here is talking about edification, the communication gifts, which are the means, the channel through which we become edified by the Word of God. And there are many supporting things that have to happen for the function of those gifts, but he's explicitly talking about the mission that requires edification through the Word of God. The, the goal of this, the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, till when? Till we all are there, till everybody is to the standard of Jesus Christ in terms of maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, in verses 14 through 16, spiritual maturity, not like babies, not tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful scheming. We're not captivated by false teaching, in other words. We're not mystified by uh, trickery, by sleight of hand, theological otherwise. But speaking the truth in love, right there, spiritual gifts, and now we're talking in love. For the edification of the saints. Do you see this concept that's in all three spiritual gifts? Well, it'll be in chapter 12 when we get to it of Romans. But it's in all three passages about edification. The gifts are for edification because that's how we love one another. So he says, Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes growth for the body uh, for, to, to the body of the body for the building up of itself in love and so it's an organization it's an organism that every cell in it matters in its function and that function if you function in your gift the body grows the body grows the edification is the growth that he's talking about and well, was he talking about numbers or he's talking about spiritual growth of the individual you can only count me once if I get up at every Billy Graham crusade and walk the aisle and they count me every time, that's inflating the numbers. I only count once as a believer. So is he talking about growth of more than one? So I I brought another and that's two and then they brought five. And so is that what he means or does he mean that I grow spiritually? And I think the answer is yes. The body grows by adding more cells and the cells themselves grow. And that's evident in the passage. Both of those are being discussed. So chapter four continues with the summary Christian walk in terms of conduct and attitude and, and avoidance of personal sin and not grieving the spirit, but we can't or not quenching no, it's grieving the spirit, but we can't uh, we can't do that tonight. So what have we seen? We've seen 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, where edification is the thing the Christians need because that's what God wants us to love us, love each other with, is with edification. That's love for you. The greatest thing you do is build each other up in the Word and cause that spiritual growth by the intake and application of the word. And that's what we're doing with each other. Now, that spiritual growth that is possible is specially equipped through the function of spiritual gifts. And that means that if we're all on mission loving, then we're all growing spiritually and we're all growing into the function of our gifts, which enable us to edify the body of Christ, which is that special expression of love. That's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and it's what you see in Ephesians Chapter Four. So you have to talk about spiritual gifts if you're talking about the Christian spiritual life. It's the explicit one of the explicit ways that God is using His Word in you as you grow spiritually. Our Father, we thank you for the uh, clarity when we look in summary. Sometimes it's so clear the big the big themes, and they're so repetitive and so helpful. Father, there are many questions we might ask um, that your your Scriptures address. You might have many differences of opinion about various points, but um, we know that you're going to show us the right way. You're going to bring correction where we need it. Uh, but, Father, thank you so much that um, we do have the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that this is our responsibility to protect. And as much as it depends on us, we're going to be at peace with all men. Father, help it be so at Preston City Bible Church. If there's anyone here that's struggling with this unity factor, with this uh, embracing the differences, that you've encoded, that you've permitted, and um, yet remaining discerning so that we're not embracing sin, but just the recognition of the different things you're doing work in our hearts. Help us to uh, grow in our ability to love so that we're able to appreciate what you're doing in the lives of those around us. pray in Jesus' name, amen.